everyone and welcome back to Blissful Mind Podcast. My name is Dana. My name is Manny. And today we are going to be talking about imposter syndrome. So some of you guys may be familiar with this term. Some of you guys may not be familiar with this term, but is it is definitely something we have all experienced. Um, if you haven't experienced this yet, um, I'm sure you will at some point in time. Um, but yeah, so that is our topic for today. Um, and so... I guess, you know, I'll ask Manny, you know, first, so to you, what is imposter syndrome? Without looking at the definition on my screen right now, um, (laughs) my definition of imposter syndrome is when someone feels like they're inadequate um, to be in the role or position that they're in, whether it's their ethnic background, uh, their position in their family, position at work, position in their career, at school, as a student, Anything, really, that whatever role they play in society, basically, and they feel like they're inadequate enough or they don't know enough or they feel like a phony, basically. Yeah, no, definitely. I would 100% agree. Um, For me, the word that comes to mind is fraud. And I guess um, essentially imposter syndrome is the fear of being a fraud. Um, But the official definition of imposter syndrome is um, it's basically a term to describe the psychological pattern of behavior where one doubts their accomplishments, their talents, their skills, and carries with them a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. Mm. Um, So, yeah, so this is typically something that is experienced in one's professional or educational career. Um, But this can also be revealed or experienced in other facets of life as well or other roles that um, we have. So, you know, one can have imposter syndrome around being a mother and what requires one to be a good mother. Um, There can be imposter syndrome around being a good brother, being a protective brother, being someone, um, you know, who helps uh, loved ones specifically, you know, maybe the women in their family. Mm. Um, And uh, essentially this is, you know... When you're experiencing this, like Manny said, you're basically you basically feel as if you're not living up to what is required or what is expected mm. of you because of that um, particular role that you are in. Um, so I think this is just such a great topic to talk about because I know Manny and I are both. Um, I can only speak for myself, but I, based on our conversations, I think we both have had a little glimpses of imposter syndrome, kind of. Um, play itself internally for the both of us, um, just with both of us being um, graduate counseling students. That's right. And I feel like it's so prevalent in our career field. Uh, It's something that even just like my fellow interns, we joke about, oh, we all have imposter syndrome. (laughs) But like we're really deep down. We're like, oh, my gosh, help me. (laughs) So I, you know, it's something that you and I know are going to experience throughout just our career path. I'm sure, like, even when we get licensed, even when we pass the NCE, even when we get LPC, like, everything, all that, all that is finished. I feel like even when you get the LCPC, everything, I've, I know I'm definitely going to be, oh, my gosh, I'm still the first year, uh, or I guess would be, like, two years in mm-hmm. um, into my career, and I would still feel inadequate enough. I don't know everything, and I already think about it now. I already think about oh my gosh, how am I going to handle criticism or I really hope I don't make a mistake at my future site, wherever I'm placed at. So I think about it a lot and it's something that is is a struggle 
for I think anyone, honestly, even as a graduate student. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. I mean, you know, like you said, in our field, I think that's something we're going to continue to experience Mm -hmm. no matter what, just because people are complex. We deal with complex life situations um, and we don't have the answers for everything like that's just not it. We're not meant to have the answers. But being in the role, in the position that we're in to help people with their situations Mm -hmm. and guide them, we do have so much pressure to feel like we have to know everything. I mean... I experience imposter syndrome so much when I'm like trying to study or mm. I'm not motivated to study right. or like I, anything like anything content wise that I'm having to deal with for school. I'm always like, crap, like I always beat myself down because I'm like, crap, like I don't know all of this. And like if mm. I don't know all of this and I'm not going to be the best counselor to serve the right. people that I'm going to be serving. <laughs> and then what if I don't know this particular thing? That snowball and then effect. It's literally a snowball effect. Yeah. And like. I think about it all all, all the, the time. time. All the time. You make such a great point. Okay, so what you're describing is basically one of the types of imposter syndromes we're going to go over later in the episode. But uh, that's something that, you know, a lot of people who deal with imposter syndrome, one of the things is I need to know everything and anything there is, all the research, all the data. You know, that's what I experienced even. I even wrote in my notes somewhere on my phone. It said uh, you need to know all these DSM-5 disorders and basically know the DSM-5 like the back of your hand, but which people that's impossible. That's literally impossible. It's I mean, impossible. I'm sure maybe like if you're 30, 40 years into your career, sure, because you've experienced a lot of different types of people in your life for our career specifically. But uh, I do know that it's not something that I should put at the forefront because I'm adding too high of a what's the word? Too high of a, a standard. A yeah, basically, yeah. A, yeah, a standard that's like almost. I'm never gonna fully be able to reach and uh so that thought process is very very common so yeah yeah and like especially because the this career that we have chosen Mm -hmm. it's so critical and essentially people are giving us the privilege to be a part of their lives Mm -hmm. and to help them with their lives yeah which is not something to take lightly of course not so that's why this is just so prevalent for us and just for many i mean many people um but specifically for us just being in counseling um just because we know that the work that we do is so critical and can really help make or or break people essentially especially because they're willing to be vulnerable and Mm -hmm. seek help yeah and I, i think what's great about this episode between you and i talking about our own imposter syndrome and just what we go through i think this is really going to help a lot of people feel a little bit more normal i guess you can say in a way like oh they're graduate students and like i'm in my internship right now everyone and i experience this a lot and i'm working with clients and i experience this a lot like am i adequate enough and you know if i if i don't terminate with a client in you know in a good way um, it, am I doing a good job? It, you know, if we do like we do a like a um, it's called a CCAPS basically where we evaluate their symptoms from first session and then usually fourth or fifth session we check again and we see if they've lowered or whatnot. And if they haven't, you know, some, sometimes a lot of interns can be like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing there? Their symptoms haven't decreased. It's all my fault. But, you know, there's so many other factors that come into play. So I feel like this episode's really going to help people feel a little bit more. And we hope that you feel a little bit more welcomed and just know that everyone experiences this and regardless you could be the dean of a university and experience this a lot i feel like the higher up you go the more intense it can get right definitely because it's more pressure Mm -hmm. it's more people looking to you for answers Mm -hmm. 
And mm-hmm. in reality, like I said, you know, a little bit ago, we don't have all the answers. We're not no. supposed to. Nope. Um, even if no matter how hard we try. Um, but yeah, so now we'd just like to, you know, give you guys a picture of exactly, you know, what imposter syndrome looks like. Uh, we kind of touched up on on that and what that you know, looks like with our definitions. Um, but there, there's a couple of different ways that imposter syndrome can come out or can be experienced. Um, one of those ways, you know, I said thinking you are a fraud. When I think of imposter syndrome, I think of like, oh my gosh, I'm so fearful of mm. not being what I say I am. Mm. Um, mm. And so, and so, yeah. Um, another one is downplaying one's successes as good timing or good luck, or just downplaying, you know, one's efforts oh. for something. Um, I'm trying to think of an example of that. Downplaying one's success as good timing. I know I do that a lot. A give, lot. give an example then. So, like, um, so like for me, <laughs> my friend, my girlfriend Brittany, shout out Brittany, she'll call me out on this all the time. Um, but essentially, I will downplay my skills and what I'm capable of um, because I have the fear that I won't be able to live up to what I signed Ooh. up for. Ooh. So, so like downplaying like. So, for instance, you know, in my undergraduate career, I was very motivated. I was very like, I'm going to do all this. I'm going to do all this, do internships, do all these things so I can achieve my goal. And Mm -hmm. like I have the credibility behind me to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of times I'll like people be like people would look to me and ask me for advice or like ask me Mm -hmm. about things. And I would be like, oh, like, honestly, no, like, it's not that great. Like, mm-hmm. oh, like, or I just lucked out at getting that internship. Like, it, it really oh, wasn't a big deal, okay. you know, or, or, oh, yeah, I did that. But honestly, like, it was really these other people who did mm. more of a, who had more of a part in it than I did. Yeah. Um, so I know that's a really big one for me and something I, I continue to struggle with mm. be, just because, um, I don't know. I, I guess it also comes from confidence. It's hard yeah. sometimes to have confidence in your own abilities and what you can or can't do. And I think it's also really easy to dismiss what what you are doing um, when you are also um, easy to compare yourself to others, which is something mm. that is very yeah, easy for me all to the do. Time. You know, with social media and... <clears throat> Just every, you know, Facebook and Instagram, seeing people reach these new heights and you're just like, oh, my gosh, like, why am I not doing that? And, you know, what am I doing wrong? So. um, But, yeah. So. So those are the ones that really, really connect to me. What about you? Like what what does imposter syndrome look like that is relevant for you? I would say for me in my own life, uh, I would say maybe lack of confidence unraveling when having to give a presentation or guide a discussion. I think that's something that I sometimes have dealt with, specifically in graduate school. Um, it was probably, with all, not all my classes, but some of them, I would say in the beginning, the first year or two of graduate school. And that was primarily because I was, um, how do I put this? We would do group projects and whatnot and group presentations and uh you know I would I would do my work however I just felt like sometimes you know okay someone else would kind of take control and take that lead role and that's fine they can take the lead role I'm fine with that um you know I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do and I'll do the most at it 
but I always felt inadequate because of it because I wasn't taking the lead role or I wasn't taking charge like oh yes I'll do that and you know raise my hand kind of situation so I think that's something that I still struggle with like for example at my internship I remember my supervisor there's I think a total of six interns including me and my supervisor was like okay we need because we don't have a front desk person anymore we need all of you to take a day to kind of send out reminder emails to clients, hey, you have an appointment for this day. So she's like, but one of you obviously is not going to do it. And I guess everyone all the, everyone started raising their hands, and I was just like, okay, cool. Like, I don't know. I just felt, it almost made me feel like, oh, I feel bad for not raising my hand and, like, jumping to, like, grab something and be like, look at me. I'll do it. I'll do whatever you want, you know. And I feel like that's something that a lot of interns experience is you have to, always be available all the time and proactive yes, so that and you can pro- stick oh out oh my gosh dude yeah. yes but sometimes me knowing me and you know me i'm the kind of person that i love balance i need that equilibrium i need that you know what i'm not going to take on this project because i know in my heart i'm not going to give my all yeah and i've got other things on my mind i've got other things to worry about and it's one less thing to worry about instead of one less thing to add onto my plate yeah so i think for me that was something that um that connects with me. And I also think that you're not like super competitive either where you're like, okay, like I'm trying to beat this person to the punch and like When it comes to sports, yes, but when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to my career field, I have realized no, not at all. Yeah. Um I, now I will say it does help being a guy, so I already stand out and so I don't really I don't really compare myself to every other uh girl, woman in who's an intern. Mm-hmm. So I don't really compare myself to them because I know I'm completely different already. Yeah. And I bring something completely different to the table. So that does help a lot. Mm-hmm. However, I do think that I will kind of assess my how fraudulent I am based on what kind of feedback I get, especially in um, from my supervisor, my site supervisor, and from my um, school supervisor when we do group counseling and we go over like an audio recording of a session that I had mm. and, then my, and my classmates have to listen in yeah but thankfully my supervisor at my school my professor for my practicum she's like oh I'm a strength based so we only will only focus on the positives not so much mm. what you did wrong but I will make a suggestion like is there anything that you think you could you wish you could have done better and stuff like that she'll ask questions like that okay so which I kind of prefer I like the strength-based kind of supervisors mm-hmm. instead because it makes me feel good oh yeah I don't know I don't know and I'm like I could see myself doing that too you know so yeah um, but that's one for me I think the other one would be um, I think sometimes just dismissing my own efforts I think even now you know I look at everything I've gone through. Um, I guess you could say school-wise and just in terms like even this podcast, right? Um, and, you know, the other, other podcast that I do and this other side business thing that I'm going to do. And I just think about it and I'm like, wow, look at all the things that have gotten me here. Like I connected with you. I went out of my way to, you know, reach out to you, Dana. And because of that, you know, it created this friendship. And then we both realized we were in the same career field. And then we both made that connection. Now we're here. So... I sometimes downplay that my efforts, you know, like the times I do go out of my way, I do put in that extra mile. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to constantly remind myself. Yeah. I don't know if you do that too, but oh, a hundred percent. It's like what's really hard for me is to sit down and look at everything I am doing. Mm. I'm super quick to think, and I was just telling you this. I'm super quick to think that I'm not doing enough, um, mm. and that I always need to be doing more in order to mm. get to where I want to be. 
You know what? There was this self-esteem exercise I just did with a client, and it's basically a self-esteem journal. And I think this would, this kind of goes into like a near the end, but something I wanted to talk about really quick was that, so each day it points out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it goes all the way through Sunday, and it says, a positive thing I witnessed, like for Sunday, and then it'll say, another line, it'll say, today was interesting because, and then on the last line, it'll say, I felt proud when, and then like, for example, on Wednesday, it said, I felt good about myself when, and I did this with a client recently, and they were kind of just astonished by how much they did and how many good things they did, and they didn't even realize it. And I feel like that sometimes helps. You have to kind of list out what are all the good things you've done so far, even if the tiny littlest things, right? Oh, absolutely. No, I was going to say send that to me, please. Oh, I will. It's, <laughs> please send that to me. Therapistaid.com, shout out. That's literally it. <laughs> no, please send it to me because okay. it's like that sounds like something that I would – personally like to integrate into my routine mm-hmm. just as Very a, much, a yeah. reminder of you know what I am doing because like you said like I think it's really easy to get into the motions of mm-hmm. just trying to cross things off your to-do list that you don't really realize everything that you're yes. actually doing it's like we're so focused on the task and what we need to do at hand that we don't take time to pause and like give ourselves a pat on the back so yeah I love that thank you so much for bringing that up yeah I it's something that I've been trying to because I've been trying to find different ways to help, you know, clients boost that self-esteem because I noticed a lot of people come in with some self-esteem issues and um, that's like one of their main goals. So I know that really helps to kind of put their life or their week into perspective because I feel like we go through a whole day or a whole week and we do all these things like study, do all this, do a podcast, then got to go do work, got to go do a presentation Got to go cook for yourself, all these things. And yet we don't give ourselves a pat on the back for just doing all those things because, you know, even going out of your way to get groceries, coming back home, cooking it. All, getting out of bed. Getting out of, yes, getting out of bed, staying dedicated to yourself, going to the gym. I mean, it's just little things like that. You should be proud that you even went, even if you didn't have, like today, I had a really, really crappy workout. I was so tired, but I still finished the workout. Mind you, it wasn't 100%, but I still did it, so I'm glad to say I did it. But Absolutely. I don't know. I just, yeah, imposter syndrome, I feel like, hits in so many different areas of our lives, not only career. I feel like that's one thing. I don't know. What do you think? No, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think imposter syndrome, like I said earlier, you know, I have I don't have any children, so I don't know what it's like to be a mom, but I imagine that a lot of mm. parents experience imposter syndrome Um, Just because there's an idea that if you're a parent that you should know everything and know exactly Mm. what to do when you're raising kids. Mm. And, you know, just based on, I guess, media that I've consumed and just parents that I've been around, like you actually don't. Like there's no guidebook or anything for any of that. No. Um, So I think it can apply, you know. Yeah, like even in your personal lives, even being a friend, you can have imposter syndrome mm-hmm. of being a friend, you know, True. not not showing up a or boyfriend, being there. Being a girlfriend. Yeah, being a boyfriend. Spouse. Being any, I mean, it's definitely relevant in a bunch, and especially just because, like, again, like those expectations that maybe others have set mm. for us or ones that we have set for ourselves. That's a good point. Where do you um, think they come from specifically? If, for example, uh, you know, if someone says, I feel like I'm just not a good enough partner to um, to them, you know? Where do you think those expectations come from? Mm, well, I think it also depends on context, you know, as with anything. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, with that specifically, it depends on if 
the two people have communicated their expectations towards each other. Yeah, I talk and about that a lot. most people don't. Yeah, I talk about that a lot to my clients. I'm like, is there any expectations? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I just saw a video the other day. No, actually, like, not even the other day, last night. And it was this married couple, and they were talking about the tough questions that they've asked each other. And mm. one of them was like, um, you know, what did I used to do for you that I don't do for you anymore? Again, that that's hints a on, good question. Isn't that a great question? Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's a great question. And again, though, that goes back to just like write that down. I guess expectations. You know, things yeah. that maybe you once saw or things that you haven't seen to level up mm-hmm. not only for you but for you guys as a unit mm-hmm. together. Um. So yeah, I think the expectations. I think it comes from. Things that we see on, you know, from the media, either on TV or on social mm-hmm. media. I think it also comes from the way that we were raised and the way oh, definitely. in our personal experiences definitely. with relationships, you know. Yes. So, you know, someone who grew up in a household where their parents were divorced is going to look at relationships differently than someone who grew up in the household mm. with parents who had, you know, 20 plus years mm. of a happy marriage. It's going to be very different. Um and I know that for a fact because I feel like for me, after my parents got divorced, my view and perspective on relationships changed. Definitely. Definitely. That's definitely true. Yeah. yeah. So I think imposter syndrome can very much play out into relationships, yeah. friendships, family. Um, yeah. All of that. And, and something else that I really want to touch on is how imposter syndrome can hold you back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've touched on the way imposter syndrome has, you know, impacted us cognitively in our thoughts and then influencing our behaviors to act on that imposter syndrome. But we don't talk. But I think it's but important you're using to also... the cognitive model. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I'm, I'm being a good student, right? <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> Clearly. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but no, but I think it's also important to talk about how imposter syndrome keeps us from behaving in certain ways and keeps us from doing certain things. Because mm-hmm. I know for me, I feel like I feel like part of the reason that um, I sought my my purpose and what I believe my purpose to be now, mm-hmm. specifically also in this career field, I feel like part of that stemmed from me holding myself back from seeking opportunities and experiences in what I got my undergrad degree in, which is public relations. Mm. And that's something that I'm still struggling with today. Yeah. Just because I graduated from college in May of 2018. And so I'll be going on three years um, in 2021, three years out of college. And um, I don't, it's still hard for me, I guess, to wrestle with, not knowing what life or that career would have looked like if I sure. would have went down that path. Yeah, I, and I think that's something that, I, that's oh, man, that's so astounding, and I th- appreciate you kind of sharing that because I feel I'm like... I'm smiling because I'm nervous. I can't believe I just shared that, but this, it's a big yeah. thing for me. No, it is a big thing, and I'm, I'm glad you shared that. And, you know, I feel like it's something that we all experience in either... Uh, in micro or macro form, you know, like uh, to a larger extent or, or to a smaller extent. And, um, you know, that's a really good example of how, you know, cognitively, if you are not, if you have that imposter syndrome, it can really affect the way you, like you said, how you behave 
and how you handle certain situations, how you handle certain opportunities. Um, I'm trying to think of an example of where I kind of, well, okay, so this is kind of like. Yeah, and it doesn't even have yeah. to be career. It could also be like, you know, I also put, you know, if you held yourself back from, you know, maybe pursuing Ooh, a relationship or pursuing yeah. a specific interest yeah. or passion that you may have had. So this is one, this is basically in high school. This isn't like my main imposter syndrome example, which mm-hmm. we'll get into later, but I would say an example of just holding back on doing something would be when I was a sophomore in high school, shout out Walter Lutheran High School, um, I I don't know, I guess I was just, I felt like, so I stopped playing football after freshman year, and I had been playing football all my life, so mm-hmm. that's all I knew. Yeah. And so I decided I'm not going to play football because clearly I'm not going to make it to the NFL. <laughs> so I, so I said, I thought to myself, this is imposter syndrome. I said, I don't belong here. I, I don't. I shouldn't play anymore. So I mm-hmm. like after freshman year, I just stopped playing. Um, and so sophomore year, I didn't not play any sports. I made this. I made myself believe in a lie, basically saying I need to study. I need to focus on my studies. And my remember my the cross country track coach was trying to get me to go and like do cross country and track. He was like the whole year he was trying to convince me, and I was like, no, 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 no. I told him I need to focus on my studies. I just want to do my studies. And I look back and I'm like, man, I should have ran tra- track and cross country because junior year comes around and I said, fine, I'll do it. I took a year off of sports. I'll do it. Come to find out, I realize I have really good stamina. I can run for a really long time. Like I love doing the two mile. I love doing the mile, the four by eight. I love cross country. I can run for like a really long time. Mm-hmm. And like my fastest mile, by the way, was uh, 459. Very proud Ooh, of that. Yes. That was my fastest mile. But Snaps. But, um, yeah, that's an, that's something I think about, like, man, I could have been even better if I had that extra year of just, you know, working out, you know, being a long-distance runner. But I didn't because I made myself believe in this lie, like, you're not good enough to play sports because you don't play football anymore, so you, there's nothing else to do. So just make up this lie. And I, and I believed it so much because I kept telling people and telling myself that. And um, that whole sophomore year was a blur. It was boring because of it. Yeah. So, yeah. and it's it's so it's so sad like how much we um talk ourselves down. Mhm. And um engage in like though in in that, you know, that narrative of mm-hmm. I can't. Yeah. And and that's why you know, I I think you make an, a great example of how um just I, I this is such a good point. I I don't know how else to put it, but I'm like thinking back about everything and just how it's holding me back. It's all rushing, right? Yeah, it's all hitting me right now. It's all hitting me right now. So, yeah. Okay, everybody, we are back. And now we're going to talk a little bit about, in more detail, imposter syndrome. Uh, Because we talked a little bit about what is it, what does it look like? and how it's kind of been embedded in our personal lives. But let's talk about the five different types of imposter syndrome. There's actually five different types. And this comes from the, they're actually the, I guess you can consider them the professional, uh, Dr. Valerie Young. And she has categorized it into subgroups. So there's the perfectionist, the superman slash superwoman, the natural genius, the soloist, and the expert. And she's done a lot of research on imposter syndrome. There's a lot of research out there. And so we're going to go into 
each one and talk a little bit about what they are. And maybe, maybe you can think for yourself, does this apply to me? So the first one, perfectionist. Kind of self-explanatory, but I'll talk about it. So perfectionists set excessively high goals for themselves. And when they fail to reach a goal, they experience major self-doubt and worry about measuring up. Whether they realize it or not, this group can be control freaks, feeling like if they want something done right, they have to do it themselves. And so there's some questions to ask. Are you a perfectionist? Well, ask yourself these questions. Have you ever been accused of being a micromanager? Do you ever have great difficulty delegating? Even when you're able to do so, do you feel frustrated and disappointed in the results? When you miss the insanely high mark or on something, do you accuse yourself of not being cut out for your job and ruminate on it for days? And lastly, do you feel like your work must be 100% perfect at 100% of the time? So Dana, what do you think? Perfectionists. Do you think this applies to a lot of people? Definitely. Um, no, I think this is, yeah, this definitely applies to a lot of people. Let, let's check out the next one. All right. So the next one is the superwoman, superman. Since people who experience this phenomenon are conceived, they're phonies amongst real deal colleagues, they often push themselves to work harder and harder to measure up. But this is just a false cover-up for their insecurities, and the work overload may harm not only their own mental health, but also their relationships with others. Not sure if this applies to you? Ask yourself these questions. Do you stay later at the office than the rest of your team, even past the point that you've completed the day's necessary work? Do you get stressed when you're not working and find downtime completely wasteful? Have you left your hobbies and passions fall by the wayside, sacrificed to work? And do you feel like you haven't truly earned your title, despite numerous degrees and achievements, so you feel pressed to work harder and longer than those around you to prove your worth? So that's Superman, Superwoman. Uh, natural genius. So Dr. Young says that people with this type believe they need to be a natural-born genius, basically a prodigy. As such, they judge their competence based on how quickly they expose their efforts to certain situations. So in other words, if they take a long time to master something, they feel shame. So basically, if it doesn't come easy to them, they're going to feel inadequate in that, like, what, this isn't easy? Like, I should have this natural talent. Um, these type of imposters set their internal bar impossibly high, just like perfectionists, but natural genius types don't judge themselves based on r ridiculous expectations. They also judge themselves based on getting things right on the first try. When they're not able to do something quickly or fluently, their alarm sounds. Not sure if this applies to you, and here are some questions. Are you used to excelling without much effort? Do you have a track record of getting straight A's or gold stars in everything you do? Were you told frequently as a child that you were the smart one in your family or a peer group? Do you dislike the idea of having a mentor because you can handle things on your own? When you're faced with a setback, does your confidence tumble because not performing well provokes a feeling of shame? And do you often avoid challenges because it's so uncomfortable to try something you're not great at? Uh, that's I know all of these. I'm like, as I'm talking about these, I'm just like thinking about my own self. Like, oh, man. Yeah, they hit. All right. The soloist, number four. So these people often are at they have a hard time asking for help. And it reveals what that young calls soloists. So it's OK to be independent, but not to the extent that you refuse assistance so that you can prove your worth. So oftentimes soloists, it's kind of self-explanatory in the name. They want to do things by themselves. Not 
only always because they feel like they're the only ones that they can do it and they're the best ones at it, but because if they ask for help, they feel like they're going to look down upon. Oh, you're asking for help? You should know how to do this. And so they're more worried about what other people are thinking of them based on their actions of asking for help. So not sure if this applies to you. Ask yourself these questions. Do you firmly feel that you need to accomplish, accomplish things on your own? I don't need anyone's help. Does that sound like you? And do you frame requests in terms of the requirements of the project rather than your needs as a person? So are you asking, let's say your boss or whatever, someone gives you a project. Are you asking based off of what are the requirements of the project and which is oftentimes a lot more than what you can do as a person? And so that's something that the soloist will experience. Now the last one, the expert. Experts measure their competence based on what and how much they know or can do. Believing they will never know enough, they fear being exposed as inexperienced or unknowledgeable. Do you shy away from applying to job postings unless you meet every single educational requirement? Are you constantly seeking out trainings or certifications because you think you need to improve your skills in order to succeed? Even if you've been in your role for some time, can you relate to the feeling like you still don't know enough? And lastly... Do you shudder when someone says, you're an expert? And those are the five types of imposter syndrome. <laughs> yes, so um, I guess, what would you say, Dana, for you personally, is yours? Honestly, um, you know, before we started recording, I had an idea. Mm -hmm. And now after... Going through all of those definitions, I feel like I can relate to each one of them. Right? Yes. I yes. So can I. So yeah, can I. Definitely. Um, especially, I think the soloist one mm. for me, I feel like is from my perspective. I feel like the soloist um, imposter syndrome is most common, especially just because I think. Um, I think in our society, like asking questions is seen as a form of weakness. Yes. I don't think. Oh, right on the nose. Right from there. the time we're kids, like mm -hmm. growing up, like we're never. I We're encouraged to ask questions when it's already ingrained in us that it, that you shouldn't ask questions, that you should know everything mm. right off the bat. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's just my perspective. And, you know, you guys can please feel free to disagree but I know, at least in my experience, I was always so hesitant to ask questions because I didn't want to look dumb or mm. I didn't want to look stupid. Yeah. And I think that's a common fear for a lot of people to have mm -hmm. is to, you know, to appear as if they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge one, too. And even in a classroom when you're like, oh, I don't want to ask this question. So a lot of I experience this a lot when you're in a classroom and the professor's like, Oh, do you have? Does anybody have any questions or this or that? Any questions? And I'm just like, no, because nobody else is raising their hand, so I'm assuming everyone else knows it. So I'm the only one that doesn't know it, and I don't want to look like a fool. But then I'm like, now I'm pretty sure nobody else knows it either. But nobody wants to raise their hand because they're feeling the same way I am. But nobody says anything, and then right, uh, and nobody, and then like it always takes that one person to ask the first question, and then people feel comfortable mm -hmm. with asking other questions because they're like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. But like, why should it take that? You, I, I don't like know. I don't I know don't. either and like like I don't know talking about this I think about one of the classes I'm in now mm -hmm. and there's this one person um one of my peers 
they are the main one asking questions all the time. Mm. And not going to lie, some of her questions are a little bit, you know, like, okay, girl, like you could have asked this after class or, you know, whatever. But at the same time, even though she gets on my nerves with asking questions sometimes, <laughs> I commend her so much for asking questions. Hey, I mean, she's you're not afraid. big money to be at school, so... Oh, 100%. And she's not afraid to put herself out there and yeah. ask questions, even if it's something silly that the teacher had addressed 20 minutes later. Like, regardless, she's like, I need to know this. Yeah. I don't know this now. I'm going to do something about it. And so I respect her a lot for that. You know, I'm looking at these right now, and I'm just thinking, hmm... I would say currently right now, I would say, yes, I'm a little bit of everything, but majority would be definitely the, I would have to say, mm, the expert and which in a sense is basically like, I base my competence based on how much or what I know. Um, So for example, I think I told you this before the, uh, or I even said this earlier about knowing all the disorders, I need to know all these things, I need to know um, all th- what my client is coming in for, like I need to know what are the common disorders, that, you know, like I, I feel like I need to know so much information, but then I overwhelm myself because it's an impossible task when I need to take it day by day. And, you know, for example, clients are going to come to your office and they're going to present with a new disorder maybe you've never worked with before. So you study up on it and you learn about it and that's how you learn and grow and that's how we that's how we learn and grow in just in general, mm-hmm. like as students and whatnot. So I think it's something that, yeah, the expert for sure. And I would say a little bit of the, I think also the natural genius, like I need to have that natural skill or talent, for example, to be a therapist, you know, to be a mental health therapist. And I need to know how to talk to people. I need to know how to use, uh, what's it called? Uh, what's that type of communication? Um, nonverbal communication mm-hmm. and verbal communication mm-hmm. and I need to know how to inter- like I feel like I need to know these things already before I even get experience working with mm-hmm. in, uh, as an intern so yeah it's something I sometimes struggle with mm-hmm. and I have to remind myself uh, mm-hmm. where I'm at yeah um, I think it's yeah. so hard too because I think you know whenever we are working towards a degree or some sort of certification or mm-hmm. whatever it may be I think the idea is, you know, when you're finished, you're supposed to be the expert. Right. When you're done, you're supposed to be the expert. And it's so frustrating that we push out that narrative to people and just to all of us as we're learning learning and developing our skills because you learn so much more when you're in the thick of it and when you're actually actively doing the work. When you make mistakes, too. Isn't that when you learn best? Absolutely. Because how else are you supposed to practice that? That, you know, emotional muscle or whatever it is that you're learning, if you're a chemist or biology or you're whatever it may be, how else are you supposed to learn if you don't make mistakes? Absolutely. And granted, like, yeah, there are some fields where, yeah, you have to be, you know, expert enough in in certain Mm -hmm. things. You know, that's why they hired you Mm -hmm. because you're supposed to know what you're doing. But at the same time, I think there's just so much pressure that comes from that Mm -hmm. when, like, a lot of careers are just opportunities are just you know a learn as you go sort of thing and then you mm-hmm. get better over time mm-hmm. um and yeah i don't mm, i don't like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know and see and this is why i'm glad we brought up the five different types and we want all of you to kind of consider and think about it we actually i got this off of it's called the muse um if you, even if you just look it up right now uh, five types of imposter syndrome um dr young she wrote a whole book about it 
Uh, it's actually called, if anyone's interested, it's called The Secret Thoughts of a Successful Woman, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. So I actually kind of want to read it just to read it because I feel like I'm sure you're going to get clients who come in feeling that way. Just self-esteem in general, right? Oh, 100%. And I think, is there a way, maybe we can like post this as a link in yeah, the description. Yeah, I think, I think we will. I think yeah. we will because I think it's something that is very beneficial for a lot of people. So we wanted to bring that up because... People don't realize sometimes it's helpful. You know how people say it's helpful when they know what, what they have mm-hmm. in terms of a disorder or uh, a health issue. Yeah, just it's, to put a name to just it. Just to put a name to it so then they can really hone in and work on it. Exactly. Because there's a solution. Actual research has shown solutions to deal with this stuff. A hundred percent. So A hundred percent. But the next part of this beautiful episode we wanted to get into is a little bit about just our personal, more on detail about our personal experiences of feelings about imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to give a little bit of my personal experience with imposter syndrome. And I think it's this story is very beneficial for a lot of people, specifically people of color, because I feel like um, people don't often think of imposter syndrome as being something that has to do with cultural identity. But it, like we said, it's in any role you have in society, as a family member, as a um, co-worker, as a friend, as a partner, as, you know, being, you know, African-American, being Hispanic. So my story is basically about how my own cultural identity has been shaped and formed because of imposter syndrome. And I view it as a good thing. So when I was in grade school and high school, now I lived on the northwest side of Chicago basically all my life. So I live by a lot of Irish and Italian people and Polish people. So I live by a lot of white people, basically. And um, because of that, you know, I was usually the only, you know, dark person. Um, so going into high school, I was actually in a high school where it was primarily African-American, white, and Hispanic. But going in, and I think in high school especially, that's when I actually hated my own identity. And I've noticed when talking to other friends, especially my one friend, uh, Chijoki, he hated his own identity. He's, his family's from Africa. They moved here. Um, and he said he hated his own identity in high school. And we both wanted to be white um, so bad. And I don't know why, but we just hated who we were. And I feel like that's something that is taboo that maybe a lot of people of color don't talk about. But we just didn't, we were just not very prideful of our, of our like of my heritage, of my Mexican Guatemalan background. And so I remember for the longest time I wanted to be white and all that and come around college, I would say freshman, sophomore year, I had a buddy. Um, He was basically my first best friend I had in college. And he would often say, he would often call me white. And that kind of triggered me because that's when I was actually feeling more comfortable about myself, like going into college, because that's when you start forming more of your identity, who you are. And it kind of did bother me a lot. So by the time junior year came around, um, I don't know if I really confronted him about it, but I remember just thinking to myself, you know, just because I don't have that stereotypical Hispanic upbringing where all my parents, you know, where my parents drink all the time and my family likes to cook Mexican food. Like my mom does not cook Mexican food at all because really it's really unhealthy. Um, She's vegetarian. Um, and I'm thankful for that, honestly, because we live a healthier lifestyle because of it. So I don't have the challenges of 
like some of my friends are like it's so hard because my mom cooks and I'm like yeah because my parents like my mom and my dad they grew up here in the United States when they were little so they were raised in American culture so they quickly embedded into the American culture they spoke they learned English very quickly because at the time in the 90s they wanted to learn English very quickly they lived in like lake in the hill suburbs like where all the houses are the same and so I was always around that kind of people and I that's all I heard in my household was English so I never learned Spanish fluently and I never needed to use it and neither did my parents because we lived around like a lot of white people and the only time we spoke Spanish was when we went to go see my grandparents so this kind of comes into play about how there was that imposter syndrome because uh, my friends would often you know say you're not brown enough or whatnot because you don't speak fluent Spanish or you don't like certain music or you know you don't joke around and you know say certain swear words or something and whatever you know just like Hispanic culture and I felt very just annoyed and upset because what makes me any different than you you know we are the same like that that's what sometimes annoys me is that our own people often bring us down mm -hmm. and just as a person of color I know how much of a struggle this was for me. And I really didn't find my identity until I would want to say probably probably like senior, well, junior, halfway through junior year, senior year when I was very proud. And, you know, I'm very proud to be Guatemalan, very proud to be Mexican. And, um, you know, I, I think it took me a while. It took me quite a while because... You know, I didn't have, like I said, I didn't have that stereotypical upbringing. My grandparents aren't super what you would consider Mexican type. They don't go celebrating Dia de los Muertos at all. Like that's, we don't do that. You know, we're just, we're just different. You know, we were raised differently. And I feel like oftentimes people forget that, you know, that there's different types of brown people, you Definitely. know, but we're all still the same, but yeah. you know, so who are you to judge? And so a hundred percent. That's, and that's my story. <laughs> no, I and thank you so much for sharing and just for being vulnerable enough to share with not only me, but also, mm -hmm. you know, our listeners. And I've experienced um, the same thing. I remember growing up. Um, so how you guys hear me talk? I've always talked like this my whole life. Right. My whole life I've talked like this. My whole life I've, well, I already you know, know where you're going. <laughs> I've pronounced my words, words correctly, and I've properly, talked, yes. and I've talked, quote unquote, white. white. People yes. love to say that. And so yes. from, I mean, grow, when, I, when I lived in LA, I lived in a predominantly black neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Colorado, and then I moved to Illinois. Mm -hmm. And both of those times, I mean, even... So in L.A., I guess I never really got much of it just because the people I grew up around, like, they had known me for a while. They're like, this is just how he, she talks. Like, we know where sure. she's from, like, whatever. Sure. But then when I moved to Colorado and Illinois, I always got, oh, you, specifically more so Illinois. Not not so much Colorado, but yeah, I, 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 really, I really got, oh, like, you, you're so white. Oh, oh, Dana, like. Dana, oh, this doesn't apply to you because you're not like you're not like black like that. Like mm. you're you're really white, mm. you know. Or, or yeah, I would just get those get that all the time, and so it was just like you. It was so frustrating because Harry. it was like, why am I considered as white? And I not only got that from my white friends at the time, but also mm. other black kids that I was around at the time too. They're like, oh, she's white. Oh, she wants to be white. She talks like that. She listens to that music. She hangs mm -hmm. out with those people. Oh, she she wants to be white. And it made me feel 
ashamed of myself. Mm -hmm. And not only did was I dealing with self-esteem issues from just being, you know, from just having black skin Mm -hmm. and knowing that society doesn't embrace black skin. And, you know, growing up, you know, wanting to be attractive to other people and knowing that they won't find me attractive because of my dark skin. So not only dealing with that, but then also dealing with, oh, what you listen to, what you're into, your personality, everything. It's 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 too white. Oh, you're not really black. It's too white. And I accepted that for so long. I accepted that because I wanted to fit in and because Mm -hmm. I wanted, you know, people to accept me. You know, however they saw me, even if it was something that I wasn't okay with, Mm -hmm. acceptance is acceptance. So it's like, I'll take it. Um, And for me, I guess it wasn't until I had gotten to college, really, that I began to embrace who I am and my skin and the way that I talk and really challenge people and call them out and be like, yes, I talk like this. But just because I talk like this, just because I may listen to these people or I may do, you know, these quote unquote white things. It right. doesn't make me any less of a black woman. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so it it's yeah, definitely imposter syndrome definitely also plays into cultural identity, especially when you're given so many messages that you aren't living up to other people's expectations right. of exactly. you know, what a Latino person should be yeah. or what a black person should be exactly. or what an Asian person person should be. Yeah. Um and that really feeds into you and it and it plays with you. Mm-hmm. Um but thank goodness for growth, like thank goodness yeah. for getting into a space where you are able to embrace your identity yeah. and recognize like just because these people want to label me as this doesn't mean that I have to do that for mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. I know what this is. I know who I am. Mm-hmm. So, and that's that. So, yeah, but thank you so much for bringing that up cuz again, like Manny said, I think a lot of people do deal with this um this imposter syndrome um with cultural identity um especially you know when you grow up in an environment where you're not surrounded by a lot of people who look like you or even if you are you know sometimes you're not even accepted by people within your own culture because it doesn't fit into you know what that people within that culture typically looks like. So it, yeah. it comes from both sides sometimes, and it is really hard. It, it is. And so I, I think, like you said before, you kind of capped it off. You just, it's such a good point how we, um, just as people of color, that's why it's so important for you and I especially. I know there's a lot of pressure on us that we put on ourselves because we're in this field and there's not a lot of people that look like us in this field. Mm. You know, there's not a lot of like Hispanic men just for sure, just people of color. There's not a lot of, you know, African-American women, you know, in this field. It's predominantly white, cisgender females, um, you know. And so it's important for us to continuously represent and show ourselves and show that we are capable of doing these things and sharing our stories. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, like I said, I appreciate you sharing your story because it, it means a lot because it makes, yeah. well, honestly, me feel like, I'm not alone. Like other people experience this. Oh, me too. A hundred percent. Yeah. But this is just an example of how it can be debilitating. And um, I don't know. But why don't you get into some, I guess, some examples of how it can be debilitating? What are some ways, I guess you can say? Well, it can. From a psychological. Well, you know, the most, I don't want to say obvious, but most clear one, I guess, for me is the impact it has on one's personal Mm self-esteem. And how one views themselves um, yeah. as being capable or incapable, mm-hmm. um, which then 
you know, causes shame. You feel embarrassed. Um, you you feel guilty because you feel as though you should be different or be in a different place mm. or not, mm. you know, have these thoughts at all. Um, and then, you know, that guilt, that shame, that um, that those negative beliefs of oneself, it yeah. all contributes to stress and anxiety. Yeah. Stress and anxiety around, again, being incapable, being capable versus incapable, mm-hmm. what you can do versus can't do, the goals or the opportunities that can be in reach versus what can't. Yeah. Yeah. And that can cause the severe depression for sure. You know, and we know that that's something that a lot of people deal with already. So mm-hmm. this can already cause that and, you know, make it extended to an even greater extent. So, uh, you know, this is an opportunity for us to also talk about not only how it can be so detrimental to people's health, but also we want to take a moment to talk a little bit about ways to combat it. And um, I, I actually have this study that I found today. So it showed that one study examining the issue, researchers surveyed 213 young people in a rigorous undergrad program for accounting and finance, asking them about the degree to which they perceived social support from different sources. The more participants reported receiving support from peers in their program, the more they tended to agree with such statements as, sometimes I'm afraid others will discover how much knowledge or ability I really lack. By contrast, Perceiving general support from family, friends, or a special person was associated with a lower level of imposter beliefs. So basically, the researchers suggested that it may be partly because loved ones are the most likely to care for up-and-coming professionals unconditionally, regardless of how they perform in their chosen field. So the more support sometimes you get from your own people in your own field, the more you feel like an imposter Mm. because you put more pressure on yourself. Mm Which is very interesting. I was like, oh, I no, didn't even think about that. That's super interesting. And it just highlights um, a great way to combat imposter syndrome mm. is being involved and immersing yourselves in your personal social support right. groups so that you do have a reminder of what you are yeah. doing versus what you are not yeah. and what you are capable of versus yeah. you know what you feel is that you Having that be. support group and... I feel like, honestly, you should have friends who have nothing to do with your field because they will appreciate it more. And they're not going to question like, well, actually, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're just going to be like, cool. All right. That's awesome. And like, yeah, thanks. You know, yeah. And I feel like you need friends who so that way you're not constantly in that mode, too. Definitely. So definitely. It definitely helps mm-hmm. having a diverse support group, um, mm-hmm. either people who are, you know, in the same lane of what you're doing and Mm -hmm. people who aren't. Um, I think that's great too. And in addition to a support group, it's also really helpful. um, I found online just to have a mentor or have someone, you know, that you can, you know, who maybe you admire, who's maybe a role model for you. Who's Who's a a role model for you? Ooh, for me. Yeah. Who's a role model for you? (laughs) um, A really big role model. Shout him out. Yes, a really big role model for me is this amazing woman that I connected with um, a couple months ago. Her name is Kim Kerr. Kim Kerr. Kim Kerr, you are amazing. Um, she's become like an extended family member. Aww. And um, she is just, I admire her so much, um, not only because she's 
she's just a woman who's willing to uplift other people without expecting anything in return. Mm. And she's already connected me with so many dif- different resources and opportunities just from knowing her for two months. And so she's somebody that I really admire. Mm. And she's she's just always trying to be her best self. So mm. she's also um, working on her second PhD. Wow. So she's also a boss. Wow, so, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's so good to How about hear. you? I have two people right off the top of my head. First one, he's the head of the clinical program here, the mental health clinical program at Concordia University, Chicago. His name is Dr. Israel Espinoza. Um, I pick him because he is such a huge influence in my just thought process of, oh, I can do this too. Because if you look at him, like if 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 you ever get a chance to see him, he's just he's like um, Hispanic male, and he's got a long ponytail, and he's got tons of tattoos all over him. You know I me, mean? I'm tatted up, mm-hmm. and he's got his doctorate, and so he's a psychologist, and he's so knowledgeable, but he's so laid back. He never is like challenging his students, like oh I think you're wrong. He's just like yeah that's cool, yeah I like that. Oh. Yeah, I see that. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Like he's so laid back. Like not that he doesn't care, but he's just no just this was the first time I've ever seen a Hispanic male in a being the head of a program for mental health, you know, because when I went to this other university in Chicago, it was just all white people, just tons of white people. So I felt so out of place and I just could not relate to any of them. I just I cannot. It goes back to that whole, you know, culture piece. So then coming here to Concordia, I felt it was more diverse. The student body there was, there was, there was black, there was Asian, there was Hispanics, there was white. You know, it was more of a mixture, and I like that. And just seeing him there as the head of the program, I, I look to him as almost like my, quote unquote, dad for yeah, the program. No, it, I get it. We, we're not in touch as much, but just knowing that he's always there, that I can reach out to him, it's just amazing. Because I always think about, you know, if you can do it, I can do it, and that's it's so profound what just someone's presence can do. A hundred percent, you know, definitely. And the last person is um, his name is Dion. He's actually uh, my buddy. Shout out Dion. He's actually in the same program as I am, and it kind of goes again to the culture piece. Uh, he, it was the first time I ever walked into a classroom, a clinical program, and I see someone who looks exactly like me, same age as me, and he's getting his degree in the same thing as me. He's going to graduate at the same time as me. Uh, we're actually pretty tight. And, you know, we became good friends because of it. And I was like, wow, another Hispanic male? I'm like, oh, there is more of us? Like, I'm just shocked. Mm -hmm. So that's just something I just, I'm very thankful for them. So, yeah, huge shout out to them. Definitely. It makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Difference. And I'm... Um, I was going to say representation is mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. Representation yes, is. is everything. Yeah. Um, like you said, seeing someone who looks like you doing what you're interested in is so empowering. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, okay, like you said, if they can do it, then I yes. can do it. Yes. Um, so in, in addition to, you know, having a mentor, um, some other ways that are really helpful to combating imposter syndrome is, you know, writing down a list of your achievements, your skills and your successes, maybe taking use of that worksheet yeah. that Manny introduced us to us, um, introduced to us earlier, mm-hmm. um, receiving feedback that validates one's efforts and outcomes that kind of goes back into the support group. Yeah. And then lastly, um, we also wanted to remind you guys that it is okay to keep a little bit of imposter syndrome just so that you always remain authentic and modest yes. in whatever work 
work or whatever space in whatever work you're doing or whatever space you are in. Yeah. Um, you know, you never want to get too big of a head, and you also just want to remember, um, you know, the the road it took you to get to where you are. Exactly. Um, it's very humbling. So, so yeah. So that is all the time that we have today, guys. Um, thank you guys so much for joining us on this episode. This was a really good one. This was. This um, was very good. Yeah, this was awesome. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's all I have. Any I mean, uh, any last thoughts? Um, <laughs> I would say I just honestly I hope somebody out there got something out of this. It could be just one little thing. I hope you found something valuable. And if you have any questions personally, you want to talk to us about uh, either Dana and I together or separately, you can go ahead and hit us up on Instagram or hit our Gmail, um, blissfulmindpod at gmail.com, blissfulmindpod Instagram and Facebook. Uh, my Instagram is Don Manolo, D-O-N-M-A-N-O-L-O with a zero at the end. And my Instagram is D-A-S Dana Bear. That is D-A-S-D-A-I-N-A-B-E-A-R. And just be mindful, guys, too, if you guys do send us anything, you know, if you guys do want to talk to either Manny or myself, um, anything that you tell us will be completely confidential. confidential. Yes. We will never share anything. Um, and we feel privileged <laughs> that you guys are willing to, um, you know, reach out to us. So, yes. so yeah, well, thank you guys um, for joining us again. And I hope you guys have a lovely rest of your day. See you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.